Hi, you're listening to Humans of Law. I'm Louise Anderson, head of the Northern Hub at Flex Legal. On this episode, I'm joined by Keely Blair, head of Cyber, Privacy and Data Innovation at Oric. We have a wide-ranging conversation today, exploring why data privacy is such an exciting legal space, the challenges behind cybersecurity, and the real human impacts of hacking. So I'll just start uh, straight into it, uh, Keely. Um, could you just briefly introduce yourself to our listeners? Yeah, of course. Hi, Louise. Um, and hello, everybody. Um, so I head up the cyber privacy and data innovation practice at Oric Harrington and Sutcliffe in London. But we just go by Oric because that's just a bit of a mouthful, frankly. Um, and in terms of what that means, is it means that we work with our clients um, on cybersecurity and data privacy issues. So um, both on the regulatory enforcement and investigation side, um, which is when things go wrong, uh, and then on the data innovation and compliance side, which is essentially when things are going well and when people either are looking to improve their compliance with privacy and cybersecurity laws, or looking to innovate and bring new products to market, and do so in a way that is in compliance um, with cyber and security laws globally. So it's a great, it's a great role, actually. It's lots of fun. Brilliant. Brilliant. And um, innovation or things going wrong, which do you prefer? Oh, God, now that's a hard question. Um, it depends on my mood. Yeah. I think, like all of us, right? It's nice. It's nice to have a practice that has both ends of it. With the with the innovation side of things, it's exciting because you're helping people to build something, mm-hmm. um, and and ultimately, it's helping our clients to realise their sort of wildest dreams. So, you know, one of the clients that Oryx recently represented is um, Lillian, which is a, a a flying car company, essentially, um, and we just help them to back car a flying car company. What? <laughs> Yeah, exactly. It's like the Jetsons, like flying car company. Um, okay. And so Lillian have just um, just backed uh, yesterday. Um, so um, and Auric was representing was representing the company there, and we worked with them from when they were a teeny tiny startup to, to when they become this enormous organisation. Um, and so that kind of thing is super fun, right? Like that's a, a wonderful thing to be involved in. Um, but then equally, it, 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 you know, when our clients suffer a ransomware incident, for example, or when there's been a big personal data breach, um, that's really crisis work. Um, and for me, as a lawyer, sort of standing alongside my clients in their sort of darkest hours when, when things are going wrong, um, is it's very different because it doesn't have that sort of excitement and pace of, of the innovation work. Um, but you're really there to to sort of help them through things and help them get the best outcomes. Um, and you're often working at quite fast pace and, and incredibly closely with your clients, uh, both the legal client and also generally the chief information security officer or the chief technology officer. So it's a very different relationship um, as well. You feel kind of protective, like you're kind of trying to stop bad things happening to them, um, which is sort of how I view my role essentially when I'm working on the enforcement side is to, to make sure that we stop stop the worst outcomes for our clients and try and get best results so they're very different so it really depends on my mood Louise I can't I, I, and that's why I don't want to pick one because um I like doing both yeah just really like that. See that um I mean flying cars to helping people they're both kind of both ends of the spectrum I can see why this is such an interesting area to work on because you kind of you, you get to do two very different jobs I guess um both both with such a depth of knowledge but very two different hats that you get to change around in the week yeah no I, th- I think I think that's right and I think it's it it, it and as I said it, it's like that's really about the life cycle of the company and the life cycle of data and what people want to do 
Um, and so it would be wonderful to think that all, all organisations and all corporate organisations are, are always innovating and creating things. But unfortunately, you know, the, the flip side of that is um, the, occasionally things get challenged um, or, you know, the bad guys are also innovating too, right? So ransomware becomes more complicated, cybersecurity attacks become more complicated. Um, and so that's why it's so important to, to, to really bring those two parts of the practice together, because if you're not on top of what's happening in terms of innovation, it doesn't make you a very good enforcement lawyer either because you, you're not able to then say, OK, well, hold on a second. This is where the boundaries are currently being pushed. Yeah. Um, so it's they, the, the two really complement each other, actually, mm-hmm. uh, in terms of in terms of thinking about how you help clients. And then also, you know, from the innovation side of the practice, being able to say to people, well, you know, we know the regulators are really focusing on this particular thing or we know this is more likely to get you in trouble or this is the risk associated with this. It really helps them to make good decisions um, because you can sort of share those insights with them. Mm. And um, so, so this podcast, um, we're, we're talking all about the kind of the topic of love and passion. And um, we wanted to find people who were really, really passionate about what they do. And your name was put forward um, by one of our colleagues. Why do you think you were put forward? Uh, because I love to talk. Uh, <laughs> no, not just that. Um, because uh, well, what, what, what I think it's put forward. Well, I think it, it is right to say that I love my job. At least you know uh, nine times out of ten, yeah. I think probably. You know, we all we all have bad days, right? We we, we wouldn't be human if we didn't. Um, but I certainly really enjoy my job because, as I said, you know, I think it's although what I do from day to day can vary hugely. Ultimately, at the heart of it, it's about solving problems. Um, and and for me. Um, that is just the most incredibly interesting thing. And, you know, when your clients trust you with either their incredible, brilliant ideas or in a time of horrendous crisis, you kind of become that trusted advisor and sort of helping helping people to solve their problems is what gets me up in the morning. And, and so, yeah, I, I do love my job, actually, which is really fortunate. No, that's brilliant. That's brilliant. And it's and it's so nice that you know why, because I think that's that's such a good um driver to know kind of what what's driving your passion is that sort of unpicking of problems um and i guess you you probably could unpick problems in lots and lots of different careers right what what is it about law and practicing law and unpicking legal problems um do you think that you really love the most so I'll, I'll 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 share something with you. I nearly cheated on law once upon a time, and um, so there was a time when I when I thought about going and becoming a, a sort of a general uh, management consultant um, and and legal risk consultant, frankly, at a at a, at a well known consultancy firm, and got quite far down that process. And actually, um, it was the thing that eventually made me stop and and continue to stay in the law was actually loving the structure that law puts around problem solving um, so you the, the, the interesting thing about you know legal problem solving is that you're coming from a place of interpretation and um, so you're kind of looking at the law and you're going okay well um, what's possible what's been done before and what are we trying to do in the future um, so trying to really understand every single element of that problem and understanding the sort of the importance and the consequences of solving it because you're not just kind of solving abstract problems it's not just simply how many ping pong balls can you get onto an aeroplane you know it's it's not that there's there's real life consequences for individuals Mm -hmm. and companies um in terms of the outcome of those problems and you know particularly in cybersecurity and privacy um 
some of those problems can be business ending, right? So when we're looking at ransomware attacks, for example, um, it, it's enormously important for, for an organization to, in the event they suffer a ransomware incident, to be able to think, oh God, how do we, how do we get our systems back online? How do we communicate with our customers? How do we do our business? Yeah. Um, so it, it, it's, but, but all of those things are ultimately underpinned by legal decision making and enormous consequences. Um, so whilst the you know whilst the the nerd in me likes to see how many ping pong balls do you do you get into an aeroplane and it's wonderful to think about that in an abstract in an abstract sense and um, knowing that the problems that we're solving for our clients have significant real consequences for individuals and companies and frankly society when it comes to privacy and cybersecurity it's it's really exciting it's not just it's not just esoteric but it's something I can like talk to my nan about <laughs> I can explain to my nan about why. You know, social media is tricky or what's happening when she gives her, you know, if she does a survey in a magazine, what happens to her data? Um, but it's something that's very relatable and part of all of our lives. So and I can also talk to my five year old and my eight year old about it. Yeah. So it's, it's a it's a legal problem, but it's a legal problem that is relatable for a lot of other people as well. I think. Completely. Yeah, completely. And it's such a it's such a growing area, isn't it? Um, and I'm sure you've probably seen that over your legal career. It's just getting more and more prominent um both probably from a business perspective from a legal perspective but also as you say from a societal point of view um you know we are now teaching children about privacy i definitely didn't have those lessons when i was at school um so you know it's, it's such a new field um i imagine that when you were you know studying law or thinking about becoming a lawyer data probably wasn't the area that you thought you were going to end up in? Uh, no. Well, no, I always imagined my legal career much like Ali McBeal. That's how I foresaw it when I was when I was uh, at university. And I actually remember in a training contract interview saying that and then kicking myself afterwards, being like, God, I don't come across as very serious and focused. Can't tell people that the reason why I want to be a lawyer is because I watched Ali McBeal. Um, but that was part of it, at least. Um, but it's, um, no, it's, it, 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 it wasn't really a, a much of a field. I mean, privacy and cybersecurity, privacy in particular, has been around for a very long time. I mean, it's got a, a history in sort of post-World War II um, issues around state state surveillance, essentially. Um, so it's it's really interesting when you kind of watch the, the progress of privacy in that way and, and the idea of privacy as a human right and that it's as important as other human rights that we have. Um, so it's, it, it, it's interesting in that sense. It used to be quite niche, though. It used to be very much for the purists of this world who were sort of steeped in privacy history um, and, they, and, and those folk have such incredible technical knowledge about privacy and the history of privacy um, and I guess I kind of came into it a little bit later it's a bit more of a bit more of an iconoclast outsider I suppose having done um, regulatory enforcement work and, and sort of white collar litigation and as the GDPR was coming into force and as kind of every company became a data company right our supermarkets are data companies mm -hmm. now like mm -hmm. if you think about it you know and you wouldn't previously maybe have thought of Waitrose as a data company um, but they are because they have your name your address your delivery they know what you buy every day they know what the contents of your fridge are and they could make judgments and, and profiling decisions about you as an individual based on you know what you eat what's your yeah. diet those kind of things um but i think for for me certainly you know in terms of my 
transition and journey into privacy, um, it was very much realizing A, that every company was a data company and B, that there was going to be a huge amount of enforcement in the wake of the GDPR. Um, and all of a sudden privacy became sort of top of the agenda. And I think cybersecurity has, has sort of been the, for, for some time, certainly in, in Europe, this is the poor cousin of privacy. Everyone thinks of privacy first. Mm -hmm. um, but I think particularly nowadays when we're all working remotely um, and we're paying for things remotely and we're contracting more online and we spend more of our time on, on Zoom. Like, and, and so cybersecurity has come to the fore as well as being something that's incredibly important. So there's been huge amount of research looking at how organizations are assessing risk and, and cyber security is consistently in the top five risks now for most organizations um, in terms of protecting and keeping data secure. Um, but if you asked me, you know, when I was a student, would I be doing privacy and cybersecurity law 20 odd years later? Obviously, I'm still 21, but, you know, imagine that's the case. Um, I would have, I wouldn't even have known what it was. Yeah, frankly, in, in any real sense the students today the jobs that they'll be doing they don't exist right now and i just yeah. find that whole concept so so interesting and i think that's often where um careers advisors can struggle a little bit because we're you know we're telling people at the stage of university like oh you need to prepare to become a abc but mm -hmm. later down that alphabet that that job doesn't exist and um and I know that's something you're also really passionate about, right? Is that kind of the diversity and the inclusion of people coming into the legal sector and and how do we make these opportunities more available? Um, was that, because I, I saw in your CV, you also do some work um, particularly around women. Is that, a, is that a passion point for you or or is it just kind of diversity and inclusion and innovation and legal careers in general? Yeah, well, I mean, it's really interesting. So I was talking to innovation legal careers in general, absolutely. So I guess let's unpick your question into sort of two 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 buckets, really. The first the first one was around um, you asked about uh, the jobs of the future and and how we recruit now for the jobs of the future and, and the sort of pitfalls and, and difficulties facing students and thinking about what they do going forward. And um, it's really interesting in our own recruitment now. And because what we do is, as you said, quite niche and relatively new, we yeah. accept that there won't be a lot of people who have really deep experience in what we do. And so we try and we try and hire for aptitude. So recognizing that we kind of talk about sort of problem solving as being like the thing that gets me up in the morning and really is at the core of our, our legal practice here at Oreg. And um, it's thinking about you know, are the people who are meeting able to solve problems? What's their approach to problem solving? So we actually set a case study. We walk through the case study, we get the candidates to present back to us in terms of how they would approach this particular legal problem. And so that, for me, also really ties into actually the diversity point, because back in the, back in the day when you, you know, apply for a legal career, it was all about how much experience have you had? Have you had five years of doing this? Have you studied at this particular university? Have you got the pedigree to, to come and, and do this, you know, illustrious career? Um, whereas when we're trying to solve, we're trying to hire for aptitude rather than necessarily experience, that could open the door to a lot more people, frankly, in terms of asking, trying to understand what people's capabilities are rather than necessarily what university they went to or what or other law firm they trained at. And for me, that's incredibly important because, you know, one of the things about problem solving and innovation is you want to bring diverse ideas to the table. If we all approach the world in the same way, 
there's not going to be any different outcomes. There's going to be no creative arguments that we come up with. Yeah. We'll all just be doing what we've done before, which is a useful reference point. But certainly when we think about how we want the world to be in the future, um, I don't think it's, it's very helpful for us going forward. And, you know, I think when it comes to diversity and include diversity, equality and inclusion, which is kind of I think the E is really important in that in that in that space. Um, it should be about thinking about how we make sure we have diverse voices around the table, how we make sure all of those diverse voices have equal say and equal power in the discussion where possible and that everybody feels included. Everybody feels invited to be part of that discussion. Um, and you're right. I mean, I think it's, it's interesting because I think, you know, one of the groups that uh, minority groups that I've been certainly helping is, is women in general. White women are actually doing a lot well, a lot better than we were. We're doing pretty, pretty well. But there's a huge problem around intersectionality and, 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 um, and women in the workplace um, and making sure that we recognise that the racial disparity um, that exists, um, certainly even amongst uh, minority groups like, like female minority groups. Um, but I think that for me in the UK, one of the big issues around law is around social mobility. So mm. this idea that, you know, you need to have been a lawyer or your parents have been lawyers or professional folk and everything else. My dad owned a pub. Still does. <laughs> and, that, and, you know, I think that, you know, um, I mean, he taught me all about great customer service, which is, I think, probably really key for being a, a good lawyer and, a good, uh, and everything else. But. Now, I didn't come from a family where we were sort of steeped in uh, this history of the profession. Um, and, and so for me, I think social mobility is hugely important and making sure that the law feels like a career that's genuinely open to everybody yeah. and where people can succeed. I think yeah. it's, you know, it's, it's on all of us to make sure that we do that and we create a profession that we're proud of and that, that really embodies those values. So, question. I remember watching the news a few years ago and seeing the news that the NHS had been hacked um, mm -hmm. and someone had installed some software on the systems and the doctors and nurses in the hospitals could not access patient records they couldn't see you know the data coming through medical history scans emails everything and I remember watching this in absolute horror you know that there's mm -hmm. a big difference between your own personal stuff Going, which is awful but the idea yeah. that in an emergency and life or death situation someone has done something so so horrendous really um and i imagine you're, you're probably dealing with clients who are going through this situation on a regular basis or you know similar situations where it's just so emotional because it really feels like theft and hostage that mm -hmm. must be incredibly stressful for both your clients and yourself um when you're having these kind of conversations how do you manage the the stress that must come with this that's a really good question um and it, it is it it when when our clients are in those really crisis situations um that my job is to, to be the voice of mm. cool, calm and collective. Um, and fortunately, having dealt with so many of these experiences um, over over the course of my career, it means that there's, you know, very little that we sort of haven't seen before. Um, so when our clients, this might be their first time um, having a, a ransomware incident or having a, a major cybersecurity event, um, being able to say to them, here are the steps you need to take. Um, we have a plan and um, we just need to do X, Y and Z and put one foot in front of the other and follow the plan. Um, 
it moves very fast. Um, and so being able to, to help be that sort of cool, calm voice that says, hold on a sec, are we yeah. making the right decisions at any particular point? And not, not letting the crisis snowball um, uh, is really, really key. The other thing that we kind of say to our clients again and again is, you know, practice makes perfect on these things. So one of the things that we definitely recommend to people is, is the importance of doing sort yeah. of wargaming and tabletop exercises beforehand. So that in the event that the worst case, worst case scenario happens, right, Louise, like people have a plan that they've written down before, they know what to do. Um, so it takes some of that panic of, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God, what do I do, what do I do? out of it it doesn't lessen the severity of the situation and certainly doesn't change the overall steps you need to take and it's still incredibly stressful but if you at least know that you've got a plan that you're following and you're you, you've read it before <laughs> and maybe even practiced it once or twice um that absolutely mm. results in much better outcomes for our clients but yeah my job is to try and help help them to take a breath and to not make decisions um in haste which they might regret later on um, and that can be really hard. And there's always a big tension between like legal and, and comms, yeah. frankly, for these things, because the communications folk are dead keen to sort of explain to explain to everybody what's happened, share information, uh, be as transparent as possible, manage the customer service experience. Whereas the lawyers are all going, oh, my goodness, what if something that we say now comes back and bites us in two years time? We're better off saying as little as possible. Um, so there is always that tension and getting that right hard, getting the tone right is hard on and that, for sure. This podcast is all about love and passion for, you know, what you do. And obviously this has come out really, really strongly. Um, I'm imagining if I were in your shoes, I would probably have the opposite feeling of love, um, which is, you know, when you're in this situation and you're dealing with people who've hacked personal data or especially like NHS, you know, medical things. Um, I actually feel like I would have... Mm -hmm anger in that situation is do you do you kind of really hate these people that you're dealing with um do, do you have that kind of opposite end of the emotional spectrum in these situations yes it, it yeah absolutely i mean it you know it's hard to hard to describe um the the level mm -hmm. of empathy you feel for your clients i think um in terms of their their that how they're how they're feeling and what they're going through and absolutely, uh, there's definitely a degree of anger. And I think also disgust, probably as well, if I was to name another emotion, because um, a lot of the time the, the motivation behind um, cybersecurity incidents and, and um, you know, big privacy-related incidents is money. They're trying to um, either monetize data in a way that is illegal, or they're trying to alternatively uh, lock up data and extort people um, in order. So ransomware is, is literally that. It's like a hostage situation. So you, you your systems are all encrypted and locked, and uh, the bad guy gets in touch and demands payment, essentially, to release your data. Or alternatively, they kind of offer to name and shame you, and they'll sort of tell the world that they've hacked you and, and that your data is available and that your customer data is available. It's really hard, actually, um, to do that. And and also, one of the things, that, you know, talking about kind of cool, calm and collected, trying to encourage our clients to be dispassionate about things which do provoke strong feelings. They do make you disgusted. They do make you angry. They make you outraged, frankly, that someone would do these things. Um, but not allowing those emotions to necessarily take over a clear head when it comes to business decisions. Because sometimes you have to think, okay, 
I know these people are extorting me, but it is the right thing to do to, to pay the ransom to recover my data. Um, and so you, we often see organizations grappling with ethically whether that's possible. And, and in some cases, it's not legally possible because there may be on a sanctions list and there was recent um, guidance from the US uh, in terms of paying sanctioned entities in relation to, to, um, to ransomware payments. But where, where, a, where an entity is not sanctioned, it, it's a legitimate business discussion which pulls in ethics, it pulls in how you feel or how necessary and urgent the data is. And, and sometimes we, we have to have these really hard conversations where we go, am I going to swallow all those feelings of disgust and, and anger in order to, pr- in order to practically get, get my data back? And, and trying to help clients sort of work through all those decisions from a commercial, emotional, business reputation, trust, ethics standpoint. And I think what's so interesting about your role is you have to be cool, calm, collected. You need the logical side of your brain, but you also need that emotional intelligence, I think, to navigate clients who are having, you know, going through the worst moment ever you know to lose your data and have it held hostage uh, a business hostage situation um i imagine that requires some serious emotional intelligence as much as intellectual intelligence do you feel sometimes like you have to be a bit of a like a therapist for your client? <laughs> uh, yes sometimes um but, but also that's that's rewarding too i guess for from my perspective you know it's um I have some incredibly close relationships with my clients in terms of um, being there for them at really difficult points and times in their careers where their jobs mm. are sometimes been on the line or um, they're making these difficult business decisions. And, you know, everything we do is relational. Like if, if, if COVID has taught us nothing, it's about the, the, anything, nothing, mm. if COVID was anything, it's about the importance of human connection and, and the relationships that we have and how much we miss and how much we crave that. So much so that we create a, a way of having it virtually, even when we can't all be together in the same room, because we still recognise the importance of having that connection. And so I think, you know, one of the key things about being a lawyer is being able to connect with your clients and, and listen to them and understand what their objectives are. Um, you know, in a weird way, it, it, like I talk about, you know, my my experience growing up and my dad owning pubs and, and me working there as well. It's hugely formative in terms of thinking about mm. how you relate with people and and you know our clients at the end of the day are, are always people behind an organization and and they have their own objectives and the organizational objectives and understanding what that is and what motivates them and you know it's one of the things that we're looking on the on the innovation side of the house when working with our clients to bring their amazing ideas to fruition is, is fantastic because you're enabling them you're enabling them to do something truly great and and watching that happen and, and sometimes watching our founders who we've worked with since they were you know founded this tiny company and then they're suddenly IPOing it and you kind of see this, this person kind of go through this transformative career journey and come out the back end um, it, it, it's incredible it really is and it's a privilege to be part of that as a lawyer you know we 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 should get involved we should be there emotionally for our clients and I think it is really important to be a be a human when you're when you're being a lawyer because otherwise we are just going to be like law robots and I I, that's that that will protect us frankly from you know people talk about the rise of the machines and you know junior lawyers aren't going to have a job in x amount of years time because the robots will come and take them um the reality is that you know 
a lot of what we do is about understanding humans and understanding how humans are going to react to things. So um, whilst a machine is capable of sometimes um, anticipating those decisions, I don't think we're anywhere close to the level of sophistication and empathy that we need in order to, to provide really good legal advice and really help our clients with their problems. Brilliant. Thank you so much, Keely. I've really, really enjoyed that conversation. Um, my head is already whirling with things that I need to change uh, as soon as I finish this call. Um, thank you so much for sharing your passions um, and your love for your job. Thanks so much for having me, Louise. It was great fun. Humans of Law is a podcast produced by Flex Legal an award-winning digital platform that connects interim lawyers and paralegals to the clients that need their support. Learn more at flex.legal. Thanks for listening.